you're likening yourself to more to dry bones this morning. Maybe you're tapping off a distant memory of an interaction with Christ way, way back in the past sometime. You're hanging on that. You're parched. You're thirsty. You're spiritually arid. You're looking for some kind of rattling of the dry bones that maybe resurrect your walk again. You're in the right place. You're in the right place. The Word of God can begin to seep into the cracking crevice of your heart this morning. Because as the song said, the Lord is in this place. It's a manifest presence, a sweet presence of the Lord here today to minister to you in your dryness, if that's the case, in your abundance, if that's the case. You're not forsaken and you're not forgotten. Church hasn't moved on without you. Receive living water today for your dry bones, for your spiritual burnout, for your exhaustion. Let's get in the Word and see if He won't just fill our cup. Psalm 27, verse 4 and 5. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may, I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling, he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. There it is. Let's break it down. David, the psalmist, is writing, singing, actually. I like David. I can identify with David. David made some mistakes. And at times he got pretty good at them. He was successful, and he was quite successful at that as well. question the credibility of the Bible, keep this in mind. The Bible was some fantasy, some made-up story, some man-made contraption not inspired by the Spirit of God. It wouldn't explore the depths of depravity, the sin of good leaders. It would overlook such things. But it's riddled with trouble, pain, the reality of living in this human dilemma of a fallen world. And it looks to a king who has the wherewithal to commit the two, the two sins for which in the Old Testament there was no forgiveness. It's real. The stories are real. The narratives are real. His heart is real. His frustration is real. His shame is real. And he says this, and out of the richness and the abundance of his experience, good, bad, and indifferent, he says, one thing I ask, one thing I desire, in some translations, from the Lord. I tell you, if you take a guy like that who's influenced the world and his people throughout history, and even to this day, Israel bears the mark of the Star of David, 
If he's got something to say, if God used him to lead his people, if God used him to carry out his, his plan, his prophetic plan, in that season of history, if this man has one thing he did, I want to know what it is. Because I could learn from David, I don't know about you, God could use David to teach me and will this morning. And David had one thing, one thing, one thing that he desired or asked from the Lord Yahweh, the self-sufficient one. One thing. And he says, this only do I seek. There it is. Part of the secret of a fruitful, abundant, full, successful life is the pursuit of one thing. And if maybe not just one thing, at least that one thing has priority over all other things. One supreme pursuit. One overarching meta-narrative of your life. One hunger for one thing to come to pass. And through that one thing coming to pass, all other things are changed, are morphed, are, are more successful, are endured better at a, at a better level, or are more efficient in our, in our stewardship of life. If that one thing becomes the one thing that's our priority. I asked you last week, if there was anything that has eclipsed your personal walk with Christ, that can be terrible things, it can be sinful things, it can be grievous things, but it can be noble pursuits as well. The noble pursuit of a career, of providing for your family, the noble pursuit of, of serving other people. Ministry could be a noble pursuit, but ministry, serving other people, good, noble things, even raising your family, being married to your spouse, all noble, loving, beautiful things, none of which can eclipse your personal walk with Christ. For to eclipse that walk with him is to minimize the effectiveness in all other areas of our life. I don't even need to go into detail about how we can sin against him. and Well, we, we know about that. The one thing I ask, one thing I desire from the Lord, this only do I seek. Seek. This uh, Old Testament Hebrew word, it means to inquire of uh, to inquire of with the idea that by inquiring of the Lord for this one thing, that you can exact that one thing from him and make it real in your own life. To inquire and exact, like to cut out with an exacto knife exactly what it is you inquire of him for and from him that you could exact that into your own life so that it doesn't just exist in him in the Old Testament, often some distance, but David is saying, this one thing I want to exact from you so that it is in my life by your hands that I can't extricate it from myself. It becomes a part of who I am. That's Old Testament. And I want to be secure in it. When I ask and inquire it of you and I exact it from you, I want you to secure it in me so that nothing can take it from me. What he's really saying is, the one thing I ask is that I want part of you in me. He's longing for that. He's got that void. He's got that Old Testament void. The interesting thing about David is he knows there's a Holy Spirit. He says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He's wanting fellowship with God. He's wanting that friendship to be secure in him. 
He knows it exists and he wants it. Maybe it's fleeting at times. Maybe he doesn't experience all the time. But he wants this friendship with God. And God recognizes that and ends up calling him he's a man after God's own heart. There it is. That's what he wants. That's his one thing. That's his one priority. And at the very least, that one thing has to be first. Has to. Because if it is, then you live a life that's protected. There's preemptive divine favor at work in you. There's a simplicity and a focus to your life. I'm speaking to a culture of people that typically in 2022 are hurried and harried, distracted. All of a sudden, mass amounts of people in our culture have a deficit of ability to, to, to attend to something, to pay attention. We're, we're, we're a people all over the place. We're a people distracted and hurried and, and mixed up and all these things are going on. We've created this hurriedness. And we can live this way. We can live this way. We can live this way in Christ. It's funny, I, I'm learning in my own life that the one thing becomes the only thing in certain circumstances. When you're living your life and you're doing your thing day to day and nothing really monumental comes up, no real challenges surface, uh, life is kind of just going along, it's kind of good, it's cool, it's good, it's restful, it's enjoyable, that's great. But sometimes circumstances are allowed or circumstances arise in which only the one thing can truly be considered whether you want it or not. When my family encircled my father's deathbed, there wasn't much more to think about than the one thing. The circumstances precipitated of focus and all things outside that room really were way down the list when the people of Ukraine started hearing shelling and bomb threats coming and horns going off and sirens there was pretty much one thing going on in their heart and mind. They were faced with the reality of their imminent death. And because of that circumstance beyond their control, they had to somehow consider matters of eternal life or the lack thereof, uh, life and death. The one thing sometimes comes our way and sometimes... We're ready for it. He says, this only do I seek. He's not seeking much else. He's not selling himself in other, other areas. He's, he's only really wanting that one thing, knowing that every other thing 
will pale in comparison to its potency and its intensity and it's his ability to be a king, a husband, a father. All of life comes down to our ability to seek that one thing from the Lord, to exact it from him, to walk in it, and it will change every other area of our life because it's that potent, that's, it's that universal, it's that adaptable to a marriage, to fatherhood, to motherhood, to the workplace, to selling a product, to creating an invention. All of that flows out of that one thing. Some of us have been living our life not in this one thing at the top, but in an inverted triangle where we're all working towards these various areas of interest and passion and careers and this and serving other people. Like I said, sometimes good and sometimes not so good. But somewhere at the bottom of that triangle, we're hoping maybe we can fit in some sort of idea that there is a God and there can be found some security in him. One thing I ask, one thing I desire from the Lord, this I do see, only this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I mean, what do you want from a man who sees a temple as a building and calls it the house of the Lord? What do, you, what do you expect of a man to really want to know that God's presence is in that building? What else would he ask? There's nothing more he could really ask to do than to know that he was welcome in that building. He was welcome in the, the presence of God, if he could get there with his sacrifices, that, that somehow or another he wouldn't stray far from that presence, a presence that his ancestors had told him was visible at night and by day. It was directive. It was a divine GPS. He wanted to be near or in the presence, near or in the temple all the days of his life. That's his Old Testament perspective. That's the best he could help, hope for, knowing that there was more and occasionally he would petition God for that, but at the very least, his one thing, at the lowest end of his one thing was, I want to be near that temple, I want to be in the temple, I want to help build the temple, I want to fundraise for the temple, because in the temple is the presence of God. To dwell means to uh, sit, to, to have the hospitality of knowing that he who owned the temple would allow him to come in and sit down and not be seen as irreverent. In other words, he felt at home in God's temple, and in God's temple, David felt like he was welcomed. He was, there was a divine hospitality that David felt he could go into that home and he could, he could be who he was, and more importantly, he could be who he wasn't. There was a, a comfortability to being in the presence of God for David, and this is one of the things, this is the one thing he sought. To sit down, to abide, to settle. I mean, David didn't want to go into the temple and act like he was waiting on a bus and, and feel uh, like he may have been out of place or unwelcome. He wanted to be able, what he's saying is, I want to be able to walk in, I want to be able to sit down, I want to be able to be comfortable, I want to settle in, I want to be myself before you, God. Great prayer. Can you do that? In earnest, in experience. So he wants to sit down, abide, to settle, to remain, to stay, to tarry. 
The far-reaching definition of this world, even word is not only tarry, but to marry. It, it is this idea that I'm going to be in the house of the Lord and that we're comfortable one with the other, not in any kind of reverent way, but such that we know enough about one another and it's, off, it's authentic enough to know that we know each other well to the extent we could marry. And yet we have this concept of the bride of Christ coming. It's a, it's a vulnerability, it's a transparency, it's a comfortability. That's what he's longing for in the house of the Lord. The home wherein abides the family of God. But that's Old Testament. Well, what about us? I've been to, I've been to Jerusalem. There's no, there's no building there's a retaining wall. There's no building. There's no holy of holies. There's no presence of God there. We've stood there. We've wept there. We've prayed there. We've worshiped there. We've gone underneath the, the, the thing. We've been all around that thing. It, it would not be our New Testament perspective to pray and to make our one thing that we could somehow go to a building and feel at home. Ah, but how different it is. We have become the temple. And we now live our lives in such a way that God himself can feel at home within us, in our own heart, in our own mind, in our own conversations, in our own actions throughout the day, that he may come in and sit down and feel comfortable, feel, feel like he knows you and he is known, being increasingly known. Oh, this thing has changed so much since, David. You now, I now am the temple, and we're now inviting the Spirit of God to come and be at home with us. <laughs> hardly to run from him, hardly to deny him, Hardly to blaspheme him, hardly, hardly to curse him. No, we are now the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, where he wants to tarry and get involved in our life. The dryness of our spiritual bones is indication of the lack of hospitality in which he can freely sit down and make himself at home. Are we living our lives in such a way that you and your body are a house or a home? And if we are a inviting home, are we for the full family of God, including the Son, including the Holy Spirit? There it is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. New Testament version, that you may dwell in me, your house, and tabernacle at home and be welcome in all that I do and say, why? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. This gaze, uh, behold in some translations, is is to see with intelligence. I like that. To see with experiential intelligence. To see that God is who he says he is, but see him through what he's done, not just to gaze upon some sort of 
icon or picture or idol, hardly. No, no graven image, no. To see God because of the purity of our own heart, because he's at work in our life, we can see what he's done in our life. He can see how he's transformed us, changed the way we think, changed our desires, changed our goals, softened our hearts, and made us more affectionate, made us more compassionate, made us more wanting for him, redistributed all of our likes and dislikes, recalibrated our desires and goals in life. Yeah, that's what he wants. He wants wants for us to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Uh, I'll take it a step further. I get a little concerned about myself. I know you are. I'm 59 years old, about to be 60. I know you don't believe it. I can't stop thinking. Now, I'm not saying this in some obsessive, whacked-out, psycho obsession. I can't stop thinking throughout every day, not Sunday, every day, probably at least once an hour, I'm confessing here, of how I might do something with the next 20 years of my life for Christ. I I can't escape it. It's like, sometimes you don't even want it. What are you gazing upon and what are you thinking about? I hope it's it's not that. I wouldn't, sometimes I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But it cannot eclipse other areas of your life. It works up and down the same way. What, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in our context is to think. What are you thinking about? See, the beauty, the word beauty in the, whole, in the Hebrew here is very interesting. Pay attention, you're going to like this. It means you think and you gaze, you're, you're, you're fixated upon, and you behold and want to behold kindness, beauty, compassion, godliness it is a it is a manner in which you approach life all right so we come up with uh, some people are uh, a glass is half empty right anybody ever told you don't raise your hand the glass is half empty others of us the glass is half full Others of us, a little more Pollyanna, a little more optimistic, a little bit too too excited in the morning those people, the glass is full. Well, to God, the cup runneth over. He wants us gazing, beholding the beauty of what it means to be alive in this world, to be with other people on each and every day, to be optimistic, to be uplifting, to be encouraging, to count your blessings, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Not just like he's off somewhere in, in, in heaven, you can't gaze that far with some sort of spiritual telescope. No, gaze upon the beauty of truth as you see truth in your life. Give your family an idea what you see when you gaze upon the Lord. You see his beauty in them. You see them through him. You cut people slack. You don't divide. You don't conquer. You build up. You encourage. The whole mindset of David here is his one thing will lead to him seeing each and every person throughout Israel. Oh, and maybe even Canaan. Watch out now. 
that God is at work anywhere and everywhere seeking to redeem those that are around him. How do you view life? Some, the glass isn't only half empty. It's got a crack in it. And it's leaking. That's not us. If you got dry bones this morning, your glass needs a little water. Something's leaked out. And you need, Jesus said this, whoever is thirsty, come unto me and I will give you living water. And he's not about a couple swallows at the bottom of the glass. He's about the overflow of your cup running over. We need a one thing that reprioritizes the abundance with which he wants to bless us so that we can see ourselves and one another. I had a conversation with someone the other day who I love, who proceeded, and she's here today, and I'm not gonna look at her. I'm just gonna look over here. I suggested she get involved in something and she had a hundred reasons why that could not happen based on her past. And I thought, every mistake you ever made is precious. It's an opportunity to keep someone else from making the same one. If you really think that we want people here to serve and to minister other people that are perfect, you're out of your mind. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All things old do pass away and all things do become new. I know there's timing on things and I know we make mistakes in our past, but gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and Allow yourself to gaze on yourself with the same grace that he looks at you. You can't love your neighbor as yourself and do a good job of it if you don't like yourself. And no one will ever tell you to love yourself because you'd have to explain for an hour and a half and I'd have to field 20 phone calls this week how I told people they should go love themselves, but why not? I got nothing else going on. You should love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're calling to disagree with me on that, leave a message. I won't call you back. I'm just referring you to the scripture. You got to have a high opinion of yourself, not a prideful, boastful one. Come on. But you're a child of the living God. You're the king's kid. You're in a dwelling place of the spirit of the living God. Why are we down on ourselves based on our past? It's supposed to be covered. Stop uncovering your past. Nobody wants to hear it. Let's gaze and behold what the possibilities can be when a person is sold out to the very concept they're going to see with the eyes of God all things around them. If you came from some church somewhere in your distant past that beat you up and told you you weren't nothing unless you did this, my apologies. I think you're great. Now, this word also means 
And this is where it gets kind of interesting. It means staff. Like the, it's like this. You can't use one thing to, to, David's saying you can't use one word to describe God. You can't. It's, it's too limiting. Well, first of all, words are limiting anyway. So you can't just say God is kind. What he's saying is you have to have two staffs, minimum two. You have to have God is kind and God is gracious. God is a provider. There's no way one word is going to get, he's got so many names because they all encapsulated together and added together the sum total of who he is. And then we're short on that even. So, so he's saying you got to have two staffs, two sticks. You got to have at least one word, then another one. He, he realizes that. I'm going to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and I'm not walking away with one word. It's multiple words, but let's just say I need two. Two staffs. Well, two staffs are called staves. If you're spending time in Britain or the UK, a, a stave is two staffs. In musical terms, the staff is the five lines you see and the four empty spaces in which the notes are placed. Higher notes, lower notes, the pace of the notes, and all that. I don't know much about it, but I know that there's somebody does. The fact of the matter is this your life is a song. I don't know what's playing. I don't know if it's a funeral dirge. I don't know if it's celebratory. I don't know. But as you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, the pitch and the frequency of your notes that you sing through the way you approach your life, create a song. Would you want to hear it? And if you did, would you want to change it? David says, he's a psalmist, writing the song, and he's saying this, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in such a way that I can't with one staff really explain him. I want a multiple beholding. I want to see him in multiple different ways. I want to behold the, I want to behold the multifaceted nature of God. That's his one thing. Pace, pitch, volume. Trouble, base, what is it? And then he says, to seek him in his temple. God's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you got dry bones this morning, you're not seeking and you're not gazing. You're probably sedentary, if not running away. And you're looking at the wrong thing in life in the wrong way. And the conclusion is, if you seek him, and that becomes your top priority, and you become pretty diligent about it, and you gaze at him in the way that you live your life, and it creates a song that's uplifting and infectious and even contagious, something you'd actually want to dance to, dryness goes away. Dryness isn't even an option. Dryness isn't even on the menu. And it's not half empty. And it's not even full. It's a cup that runneth over. There's David. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling, and he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Well, my favorite verses in all the Bible is Psalm 61 and 2. From the ends of the earth, he says, I call to you. Like wherever he's going to find himself, he's going to call. He says, I call as my heart grows faint. 
Here it is. Is this the cry of your heart? Lead me to a rock that is higher than I. You get up on Sunday morning and get your kids ready or about nine o'clock, decide if you're going to be coming to church and you, get, you shower up, suit up, get in your car and you come over here. I hope, I hope somewhere in your heart is this idea that God is going to lead you to the rock that is higher than yourself at present. That you're going to, you're going to be taken to another level of understanding or devotedness or allegiance or awareness or sensitivity. Something has to be higher than where we're at. You can't interact with this God that we preach and worship and somehow think that we're going to maintain where we are. It is such a a contradiction. You interface with, seek, and make it that one thing and gaze upon the beauty of God. You can't help but change. You can't help but find yourself on a rock higher than yourself. Hey, listen, the flood's coming. Do you want to get on a rock higher than yourself? I think you do. There's a deeper expectation. There's a greater hope. There's a new faith for a miracle. There's a deeper level of love. There's a a more abiding compassion in you. There's There's a Christ in you who wants out. The Spirit of God is in you. He wants out. There's new ministry, new people. There's evangelism. There's something happened. There's a word of wisdom. There's a gift of the Spirit. There's something higher than where you are. And God forbid we ever become a church that gets content with the status quo. The status quo is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. It's acceptable to the world. In fact, the world is so pleased with being mediocre or less. They want so badly for us to mimic them. And God's saying, I've got a rock that is higher than yourself. Why would you settle for this divisive, debased, common, mixed up world? The only reason is because if you're one step above the world, you can be content with where you are in Christ. Not the case. The world is not the standard. That book's the standard. And he's got a high calling for our life. A rock higher than ourselves that won't allow the same maintaining average go to church every day of your life and never get beyond where you started. He wants to lead you to a rock that is higher than where you are. Because he is in you, and that's his nature. There's a little tighter hug. There's a more frequent hug. There's a more frequent affection. There's something where you are that he has beyond where you are that is what happens when your one thing is to seek him. And that makes it all worth it. Don't become overly content with where you are and don't condemn yourself. But know this, wherever you truly are, he wants us beyond that. And the yoke should be easy and the burden light. It has nothing to do with legalism. It has nothing to do with striving. It has everything to do with allowing him to express himself out of your life because he feels at home right where he is 
and he can sit down and tarry. And your life has given him something to work with. And he dances to the song that is produced when you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He ends up the psalm with this, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. I would say the most difficult thing for Americans in 2022 to do, leave the Lord out of it for a second, is wait. Do you know how many times I pray that the person who's going less than the speed limit ahead of me doesn't go to this church? or cannot recognize me in the rearview mirror. I find myself behind people who, for whatever reason, even with the grace and favor of God, cannot make it up a mountain going over 20 miles an hour. And I'm driving like this in hopes that they don't look in the rearview mirror. Well, they probably don't have to. I'm in their back seat. Sometimes I feel like I'm going to roll the window down and say, you're a minister of the gospel. Oh, that's right. Also, I got my wife over here. She's letting me know too. I don't have to roll the window down. I don't have to hog the horn. I just need to just, I'm in the back seat. Could you, could you pick it up? Could you pick it up? We don't like to wait. Even what's supposed to be fast is now slow. Listen to these words. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Let's wrap it up. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. He will show up. He will be active. Every now and again, we need to vacuum the temple, clean the floors, dust the lamps, clean the bathroom that he may want and enjoy sitting down to tarry and make music with you and with me as you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and see who you are in Christ, not who you're not apart from him. You're special and you're God's handiwork. There's a whole life out there beyond where we are. Let's seek it by seeking him. Status quo is not an option. Ponder these things for a few moments.